and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's Valentine's episode, we explore the new data showing the long-term decline in fertility. Some are saying this is largely due to women choosing a career over motherhood, but does that give the full picture? Well, in this episode, we explore the many reasons why women aren't having as many kids or any kids at all, and what this means for them as well as society. And we have a wonderful guest to break it all down. Mark Regnerus joins us. He is a professor of sociology at the University of of Texas at Austin and a senior fellow at the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. He is the author of four books from Oxford University Press and more than 40 articles in peer-reviewed journals. His research and scholarly essays have appeared in media outlets as diverse as Slate and First Things. And it really is a pleasure to have you on, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Beverly. Glad to be here. And my first introduction to you, we have chatted before, um, was after you wrote the book Cheap Sex, The Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy. I thought it was fascinating because it explored the American mating market. So before we get into the issue of fertility, which of course relates to that, what made you decide to study this area of research, really get into marriage and monogamy? And how did somebody like you, a sociologist, decide that this is where you wanted to focus? Right. Uh, This was completely (laughs) out of my anticipated purview. I remember being back in graduate school, studying the sociology of religion and thinking that people who are studying sexual behavior and relationship formation were a little odd and, you know, slightly creepy. So, (laughs) and, uh, but the data just led me there. Uh, After I finished graduate school, I was, you know, plowing into this rich data set uh, that's still active today. And just thinking the stories around uh, relationship formation, uh, sexual coupling, things like that were fascinating and told a certain story that went in one particular direction, which is uh, kind of uh, what Cheap Sex, the book, was about. And so a lot has changed in the recent decades. Um, Some would say that that is because women's behavior has changed quite a bit, most notably women um, getting college degrees, women entering the Mm -hmm. workforce. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we will get into the data behind fertility rates. But overall, can you give us a broad view of how society has changed, how women have changed and men as a result? Right, right. So uh, one of the theses in cheap sex is that uh, over the past several decades, um, we've just watched sort of the, the, the kind of rise of, of women economically, educationally, etc., fed in part by the kind of the advent of uh, safe and reliable contraception back in the 70s, really, was when it came on board for the most people. Um, and that has basically had an unintended consequence of uh, both delaying childbearing, um, but also sort of making for a uh, significant competition in in the economic marketplace, slowing down relationships, uh, slowing down fertility, obviously. I mean, there's no way you're going to get the kind of fertility data we have today without that. And creating this kind of like uh, unintended challenges, uh, especially in the mating market, uh, marriage, remarriage. And that's kind of led us to the place where we are today, where in some ways we've accomplished what we have wanted as a society and as in the West. And uh, yet it's fruited these problems that um, we would like to have all the goodies with none of the the costs. And frankly, on this one, it's, it's not possible. Yeah. 
And and I can just say to to give a little bit of my background, and I've shared some of this on the podcast before. So I got married uh, about a year and a half ago at age 41. I have no children. And part of the reason for that was because I wanted to wait till I had a spouse in order to do it. But uh, somebody who lived in D.C. during my 20s and 30s, I can say, especially with the single female friends that I had, a lot of them had amazing careers where were gaining a lot of traction in their careers, mm-hmm. crying climbing the career ladder, so to speak, but still looking for a spouse and struggling to do so. So I I tweeted about the fertility rates and got a lot of traction on that. So I I thought we would just start by kind of breaking down what are, so like you said, there are benefits. There are a lot of benefits, um, for example, for me personally, to be able to run a business, provide for myself when I couldn't find a husband. Um, So that's great for women. But like you said, there are trade-offs. So what is the fertility data telling us today, not just in the United States, um, but globally, because there are new studies out on China. Now they have other factors in (laughs) um, the one child policy for so long, but what Mm -hmm. do we know today about fertility? Uh, well, it's at a historic all-time low here in the United States and, uh, and, and you know, around the world as well. So one of the things about fertility rates globally is how pronounced the sort of the, the bottoming out of them is in so many different places. You know, places that when I was a child were considered sort of third world, developing world, now are uh, at two point zero or or lower right you think about iran right or kind of our long-term foe one of them um they have a lower fertility rate than we do right and so india now at or near 2.0 you know just in, in some ways it's stunning um u.s is down to somewhere between 1.67 and 1.75 ish and has been for the last few years covid pushed it down a little bit further, but we got a, the bounce back was not impressive. So uh, it's really gotten into our minds in some ways, right? Which is why the, the China's one child policy, you know, they could lift it. They did. They said, okay, two, you know, that didn't work enough. Like they, you know, bump it up to three. It doesn't matter. They could bump it. They could get rid of it all and bump it up to 10. if They wanted, they could start to reward it. And it's not really going to matter because it's uh, ingrained culture and habit in the mind now and has been for generations. Uh, so it's just not it's something that, you know, if you can suppress it by policy or suppress it by economy. Um, it's just it's hard to get it back. Right. And so now lots of the West is kind of looking down the road, uh, you know, but that's it's decades away yet. And, and seeing, you know, the kind of the, the situation where we'll have a small, relatively small workforce, you know, comparatively speaking, um, basically providing for the, the, the tax base, the social security base for enormous amounts of people who are living longer and longer lives. Um, it, you, you see, so there's just not, not just the total fertility rates. There's also the kind of the population pyramids, you know, which is like a population pyramid like this, which is like the oldest at the top and the youngest at the bottom is, you know, uh, characteristic of um, uh, developing world societies where they have lots of children to take care of very few elders. And, uh, you know, then you have sort of uh, 
societies like this where there's a bulge in the middle and the people at the bottom are going to age up. There's not going to be that many of them and they have to take care of that bulge when they get to the top. So that's where we're starting to, to look like now. We used to be sort of a little more flatter like this. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a real problem, but population problems can never seem to motivate people, right? The only thing one can do about them is sort of big level policies, okay? Taxation, increased social security, et cetera, which of course, you know, hurts your, hurts the sort of working families. Um, I would say the United States is probably going to try to solve it by immigration uh, because that's the only way to do things quickly because you can't like regrow a society. Plus when you solve it by immigration, basically you're, you know, you're taking other people's uh, other countries, people and replacing yours with them um, kind of solving your problem at the expense of somebody else. And, and it's interesting that it, this also, this discussion we're having comes when Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare all being discussed in the State of the Union yeah. this week. I'm yeah. talking about Social Security. But the reality is, is if from, from just a policy standpoint and practical standpoint for a society, uh, for a country, if you don't have enough working people, a safety net like Social Security can't last. No. I mean, we've been seeing the uh, that we're going to start to, I, I believe it's withdraw more than we're putting in pretty soon, uh, if not already. Um, and, you know, un unless they tweak it somehow, it's, that is going to be challenging, right? So and the interesting thing is to, you can compare the United States, which has somewhat you know, better situation than uh, nations like France, where, you know, they're striking about raising the retirement rate age. I think it was from 62 to 64. <laughs> We're like 64, boy, it would be great if we could retire at 64. Um, and so our situation is not as grim as some places, and yet uh, it's, it's definitely coming down the pike. Now, one of the interesting things, too, with this is, you know, you saw Republicans and Democrats come together a little bit about this because there are so many people who are, who are you know, tracking in that direction or are already receiving their Social Security. They feel like they've paid in and that they're due that out. Um, and frankly, as many people age and didn't form families, this is, you know, this is their salvation. This is what's going to keep them, them going, right? You scale back and you roll back and you think about, ah, the societies in which we had a sort of more family unit that was multi-generational, moved forward in time, grandparents in the home or very nearby, um, people taking care of people above them, like that was their protection. Okay. I'm not saying that's ideal, but decidedly we are being, our, our oldest citizens are going to be increasingly protected by strangers in the future. And strangers do not love you. You cannot force people to love and sacrifice for other people. Um, and yet our, our patterns are predicting like, this is where we're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to get into some of the reasons why. There is an interesting study that came out just a few days ago from the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, and they are showing that half of women under 45 are childless. The study authors uh, credit several reasons for this trend. They talk about the higher levels of education, uh, greater and longer 
career paths, changing family values, et cetera. And I was tweeting about this um, because a lot of people were discussing that it, it is because of women's career choices that they're foregoing motherhood, they're foregoing marriage. I find it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, complex than that. So can you get into just the reasons why? We talked about the child's one one child policy. Um, so mm-hmm. sometimes it's policies. But in the yeah. case of the United States, it's different. Um, mm-hmm. Why are the reasons, what are the reasons we are seeing fewer women having children? Uh, as you said, it's a lot more complex than that. Um, well, they're having fewer children because we can effectively prevent childbearing these days. Uh, and so contraception has gotten very uh, advanced from the early forms. And so people get on it early and have spells on it, get off it, get it back on it. Um, and they can finish a an educational career, start uh, uh economic career and kind of push the idea of like, well, do they have to commit to a spouse early? No, they can afford to be choosy. I mean, women's career success makes them more choosy. That's just, that's just the way it is. They, they can afford to be. And most women would say that's a good thing, right? Okay. I understand the impulse towards that end. And yet being more and more selective means fewer and fewer will actually get married, right? Because it's not just about a delay in marriage. Globally, as the average age at marriage rises, it predicts linearly the the share of people who will ever marry, right? So fewer people will marry. uh, Is there a data point that people are predicting such like in 10, 20 years, how many of Generation Z, let's say, will get married, women especially? Right. So the cohort, I believe that's born, I think it's that... 1990, we're probably about 30 today, 33. Um, the expectation is that roughly a third of them will not, a third of those women will not marry, right? You say, ah, oh, that's a third. But, you know, historically, it's been off and on in the United States, roughly around 10%. Uh, it hit a low in the 50s and 60s of about 5%. But, uh, you know, we're, so we're leaping from 5% to you know a third that's 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 a big deal right so a, a lot of it has to do with uh, you know not needing to get married right marriage has many attractions about it but it's also sort of historically been the way people survive and uh, make it through difficult times well we have we're better at surviving and making it through difficult times now and we don't even actually need marriage towards that end so it's not surprising that some people wait they often still intend to marry and they often still intend to have children. It's just sort of, you know, biologically that becomes more difficult, right? So, you know, peak fertility is already done before age 30. It doesn't fall off a cliff, of course. Um, but uh, the 30s is more difficult to have children in and, and, and the 40s even and even more so. I teach a class uh, called Romantic Relationships and Family Formation at the University of Texas. Yesterday, we had that sort of the, the, the diagram of showing, uh, you know, pregnancy, uh, or I should say uh, quality and quantity of, of, of eggs at different uh, ages in women, right? You know, they're stunned to, to see it. it's, it's different uh, than they expected. 
And so do you think with this delay of marriage, and like you said, there, there are, I even think society has pressured women a lot of way to say, do your career first and then think mm-hmm. about it. Um, but a lot of times, I, I do think that that's changed. I think women, even in their 20s, are looking for a spouse, um, a spouse to do life with when they get married, when they have kids, maybe yeah. up for debate. Um, yeah. But the, the as you call it, the mating market <laughs> has its own set of challenges yeah. these days. When you think about online mm-hmm. dating, I met my husband yeah. through a dating app um, because mm-hmm. it was hard to meet someone otherwise. Right. Even well, you lived in Washington, D.C. Yeah. That's which... one of the worst places to <laughs> look for uh, a, a mate in part because the sex ratio is so skewed. So many more women there than men. And, you know, it just uh, you don't have to be aware of that. But, you know, a sort of a social structural fact like that still works itself out such that, uh, you know, tons of women who spend time in D.C. complain about it. It's a supply and demand issue, mm-hmm. and we can't get away from the economics. So can you tell us, for the single ladies listening, where they should go, that where their best <laughs> odds are for finding a spouse? Yeah, um, the, the, <laughs> the latest map, you know, people, you know, people move. So like the, uh, the map I recall seeing is a little bit dated now. Um, I think it had, uh, I, I remember, like, Dallas and Denver being pretty good places in terms of uh, sex ratios. Austin wasn't too bad. Anywhere you have basically uh, a tech sector or sort of a a military area, basically you see more men of different sorts, of course. But uh, and I I don't recommend moving because of that sheer fact. I really don't. Um, One of the challenging things about the, the, the reality of cheap sex is that uh, uh, it's not just one thing, right? It's not just sort of like a sex ratio problem. Um, it's, you know, the, the mating market itself, right, is, is divided into corners, right, in a way that it once was not. Um, so now you have a corner that's basically a sex market, right, uh, where you know, in some ways, like prostitution used to be outside of the market. I mean, back in the day. Now it's kind of roped back in a little bit, uh, not intentionally, but just sort of, um, how, does, how do you say it? Like you can, some people pay women for sex. Some people don't pay women and still get sex, right? So it's uh, it, it, the corner of the sex, the corner of the mating market is for short-term relationships. And then the other corner of the mating market is for long-term marriage relationships, right? And so more women flow to the marriage side of this. They want commitment. They want something long-term, okay? And they're not wrong to want that. They're absolutely right to want that. And yet uh, there's a, you know, there's a turn in the market. There's a lot of people. There's not enough cycling off of the market by getting married. So, and there's a ton of deception on the market, right? People feigning long-term interest when they're really only, you know, short-term interest. So there's a lot of guesswork. There's a lot of uh, discernment and clarification that goes on. People sort of uh, signal things to each other on the, on the, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure when people chat about sort of matches they've made, you know, they're trying to figure out like, what is this person after, right. Or into, or wants, right. Before I even agree to meet him or her. So, right. That's a challenge. Uh, it's a very different kind of challenge than we had in the past. Now, 
one of the, the challenging things about uh, online dating is that, and you think, well, oh, it's more efficient. Yes. But efficient at what? Efficient at putting people together to have a conversation. Okay. And then maybe they'll meet. Maybe. But, you know, so Tinder has this sort of uh, Tinder insights. They, they, for individuals, they can ask for their Tinder insights and Tinder will spit them out as far as I can tell. Um, and to me, I mean, I, I look at some of these that people post and like, it's stunning, uh, you know, stunningly predictable about men's and women's behaviors on this, but also how many matches are made, how many conversations are had, how many dates are had, and yet how bloody few relationships actually come from it right? and almost no marriages, right? There are some, but like really unusual, Right. And I think, you know, for something that was meant to kind of bring people together, it's clear that the, the, the goal, both of the, the software itself, frankly, how people use it is, is it's not really for long-term relationships, right? You have to kind of interject, intervene, and push your way towards what you want if it's a long-term relationship, because everything about it kind of signals uh, kind of the consumption of persons rather than the sort of the production of a family. It treats people as commodities. Um, it allows you to move on very quickly. Um, you get to be very choosy. And I think mm -hmm. a common statement, I'd be curious to hear what you hear from women maybe that you teach or women who contact you mm -hmm. through your work. But there is a, a definitely a disillusionment from women who want that long-term relationship yeah. and feel like they have to use the dating app but are yeah. so frustrated yeah. they get ghosted. They meet men who aren't there for the right reasons, et cetera. What is the common thing you hear from women? Because I just know right. women are exhausted. A lot of the single right. women I know are just so tired yeah. and emotionally drained from it. Yeah. I, you know, it, it has, it, so far as I can tell, not being on it myself, it, from what people say, it has kind of the qualities of, uh, you know, the sort of the dopamine stimulation of having conversations with multiple people at the same time, right? Low grade conversations, but sort of, uh, I can imagine, you know, talking to multiple women at the same time, kind of seeing where this is going to go, see what, you know, by itself, it kind of scratches an itch hmm. in the head, right? Um, so that there's kind of this permanent suspension almost of a, of a, a burgeoning relationship at the talking stage, right? So people will talk, we'll, we'll say that like, ah, we're talking, we're talking in a way that, you know, I'm 52, right? <laughs> we didn't have that word back in college, et cetera, talking. Like that just wasn't a phase or a stage. Now it's not only a phase, it's a, it's a longer phase, increasingly longer phase. Um, and I think like, how does it take so many people so long from, to move from talk to meet, right? And then you'll know, get all sorts of explanations of this, but it really is this sort of dissatisfying no man's land in some ways that women, especially women, because women on average would like to see a, a relationship that has promise move forward a little more quickly. But if you take a step back and you think the whole thing doesn't happen quickly anymore, I don't care. You can switch on to Bumble. I mean, so what? You get the first, the first conversation i mean that's it right it's not a whole lot more advantage to it 
it's not really designed to get people off market and married. Um, whether that's human nature or how it's programmed, you know, the whole thing you would think is this great network to meet a lot of people when in reality, the fewer options we have, the better. I'm married almost 30 years now. And I, I, I think I said in cheap sex, I don't know what I would have done had online dating been an option when my wife and I were having difficulties when we were, you know, still in college dating, like we made it work because our option pool was small. Yeah. Well, I I do want to take a brief moment to talk to you, our listeners. You may know that Independent Women's Forum is the leading national women's organization dedicated to enhancing freedoms, opportunities, and well-being. But did you know that we are also here to bring you women and men on the go, the news? You can listen to our High Noon podcast, an intellectual download featuring conversations that make a free society possible. Hear guests like Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin discuss the most controversial subjects of the day, or join us for happy hour with At The Bar, where hosts Inez Stepman and Jennifer Braceras chat on the latest issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. You can listen to the past episodes at IWF.org or search for High Noon or At The Bar in your favorite podcast app. And Mark, just as we're rounding out the conversation, I want to talk about just the personal implications of this for women especially, but I want to give a little tip. So this is the advice I've given on online dating as I've tried it over the years um, to try to wade through who's there for the mm-hmm. right reason. It may work for some, may not work for others, but I actually do the, did the opposite of what they said you should not do. They said, don't talk about religion and politics. And that would always be one of the first things I would talk about. Absolutely. Because then I, you just weed everything out. Or as yeah. I like to say to people, whatever's important to you and is a non-negotiable, put that out there right at the front like just see who's on it and then the second thing move to a phone or facetime conversation as quickly as possible it's the ongoing texting or conversating um, via text through the apps platform that i think just prolongs what usually is an inevitable which is you're not a match so have you heard the same thing or think the same thing no i i i haven't heard the same thing but it (laughs) makes sense to me right uh and I and I understand the sort of impulse to well, you know, I don't want to scare them off. Like, absolutely, you do want to scare them off if they're not a great fit, <laughs> and you want to do it upfront so that you don't get hurt later, right? I mean, why delay emotional pain, right? Put it out there upfront and just say, I need to get this out of the way right now. <laughs> These are my deal breakers, etc. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes, and so fine, you have fewer options. You should have fewer options. Scores of options just stymie people. We don't know what to do with that much, right? Um, and, and you think like, so putting out your deal breakers is a way in some ways of a little bit, not as good as it, but mimicking having friends doing checking for you essentially, right? So I introduced my uh, very good friend of mine to his, became eventually his wife. But like I had already known kind of what she was about, right? So what you're describing is, is a way of kind of, you know, pulling in a friend, a non-existent friend in terms of this conversation to sort of, ve- you know, the vouch sifting. for you. Sifting, vouch for you exactly. and do some of the sifting. Right. It's important. Because what you're looking for, if you're looking for a long-term relationship, you're looking for somebody that's very specific and not many mm-hmm. people are going to fit that bill. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. 
if right. tons of people fit it, it probably wouldn't be a special. And I don't believe in soulmates, no. but there's an aspect to there are important things and non-negotiables to each person as there should be. And you need to find somebody who matches up with those. So just kind of finishing the conversation. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Valentine's day coming up and a lot, this is hard for a lot of women out there. A lot of women who do want to meet someone who are struggling. Of course, a lot of my friend base is in Washington, DC, which you said is the worst place to be. If you want to find a a husband, (laughs) that's discouraging. (laughs) Um, Do you have daughters yourself? And what do you say to women to maybe help them? Because I, I heard a lot and I hear women hear this, that they're being too picky and that they're intimidating. I don't find that's the case. I think a lot of times it's just the supply and demand issue and where we are um, as a society. What yeah. do you say to women out there? Because I think a lot of them are blamed for not being married and therefore not having kids. Yeah, well, certainly they shouldn't be blamed, right? Um I'd say the average woman still wishes to get married, wants these things, wants children. Uh, now, sometimes it could be like, I want them on my own terms, my own time frame. That's, you know, that can be challenging. Uh, but uh, so I have a high school freshman and I have a, a 22-year-old. Um, and the 22-year-old graduate school, successful, bright, etc., cetera, um, hasn't dated much frustrating right and it is frustrated uh one of the things i had uh, suggested to her because it was suggested to a woman that you probably both and you and i know um she said mark i find foreign men to be uh, have been better for her daughter 29 hmm. year old daughter than american men I'm like huh Anyways, I remember I remember meeting this this guy in, in Prague not that long ago. Some talks I was giving, and I said, "You should come pay my daughter a visit." <laughs> they, you know, they Facebook friended and started chatting a little bit. I don't think it went anywhere, but uh, I did think you know his level of maturity was exceptional. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't mature men here in the United States, et cetera. But uh, culturally, you know, the United States, we have a problem. Um, to those who have been given much, much in the way of, of uh, uh, maturity seems to have been extracted for that cost. Um, it's, it's a challenge. So, she's not in the position of like, you know, she's not turning people down. Right. It's just, uh, you know, she's not meeting them. She's not online. She's not into online dating. Uh, and I think, you know, it's fine not to be at that age. I mean, I college kids who are on Tinder, I'm thinking they're not on Tinder because they're looking to meet their future spouse. So, you know, in, in some ways, like it was a solve a solution for a meeting problem. And I think people on, college campuses don't fundamentally have a meeting problem right so uh uh, i think it's not a bad platform it's just it doesn't you know it solves one problem but it's creating another the idea that we can sift through human beings like they're uh, uh, dishes on a table so and and i think just one of the things I wanted to do in talking to you because I found your book was helpful to me is I think a lot of single women ask why and what's wrong with them. And I do encourage young women, especially those in their twenties to focus on trying to find someone. 
don't, if, yeah. if a man is pursuing you and Absolutely. you have a good relationship, don't think, well, I'm going to delay this because I really have this great job. Yep. Focus on the marriage in your 20s if you can, because as you were saying, your fertility declines. And then I know so many women in their 30s and 40s who don't know what to do now. Um, but I also wanted to say to those who are still single, there's nothing wrong with you, because I think that's how so many women feel, is that there's something wrong with them. And they have this desire to have children, and they don't know what to do. Is, is there anything you would say along those lines as well? Because I, I think the families of single women don't know what to do and single mm -hmm. women themselves don't mm -hmm. want to know what to do. Yeah. But if you're saying if the data is a third of women born in the nineties mm -hmm. and after aren't going to get married and that yeah. statistic can get worse, we're going to have to right. emotionally support women as well. Right. Yeah. I don't know if this is terribly satisfying to hear, but like there are multiple roles for people in families to play. Right. Uh, speaking of the Czech Republic, another dear friend of mine there, uh, you know, she's 31, I think, would like to marry. Uh, not happening. Um, and But she has, you know, she's an auntie to a variety of people who are not her actual, you know, nieces and nephews. And she has really uptaken this role. And I think in, it's important. You know, the, the, the family is a system. It's not just like a nuclear thing, right? And so to find your place... To find your role, if it's if the kind of role isn't happening that you want, plus like becoming an auntie kind of thing, doesn't mean you won't actually meet someone. It just means like you're plowing your family affections into other people and other people's children for now, right? Maybe for the long run, but you're richer and uh, for the sort of having invested in, in, in family life, even if it's not your own family. Uh, I mean, that's part of the reason, part of the way we can solve some of this yearning for, um, sort of family relationships. Now, you know, I can't solve everything, but I do think responding rationally to the options presented in front of us to love, right? I mean, I think all women are called and all men are called to love, right? Whether that is a spouse and their children or other people's children in other ways, I think we're called to love. And I think that's a great way to end this. And, and also the call to love, loving someone else also brings so much joy too. Like you said, it can bring purpose, even if it isn't in the sense that maybe you're praying for or hoping for. And that was a big reason why I wanted to bring you on because I did really appreciate your book, Cheap Sex, wanted others to know about it because there is data behind what's going on. This isn't some thing that we can't figure out what the solutions are a little bit more complicated but thank you for this work your work in this area i know it's going to continue to be an important area mark regnerus thank you so much you're welcome beverly thanks and thank you all for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That is IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum. Thanks for watching.